Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, by popular demand, we are going to be responding to Mike Winger. And here we have him in front of us. He's, he's our good friend. Uh, we've responded to him a few times before. And he's like, oh, this open theist guy hates me. No, I don't hate you, guy. I don't, I don't got anything against you. In fact, in fact, I'm quite jealous because look at him. He's a, a tall, dark, and charismatic. I don't know if he's tall or not. I, you just you just guess when people are on the screen how tall they are. I think Leighton Flowers is like a really tall guy. And and uh, I don't know. James White might be a little wormy guy. I don't know. I've never met James White in real life. Uh, but that's, that's actually pretty funny. And all the Calvinist people, um, they all tend to be like, pod people they like they live with sewer alligators and they're like the matt slicks of the world and the james whites of the world and the tyler velas but mike wigger is not that guy he's he's got a lot of charisma he's got a lot of screen presence so very jealous. I like the guy. I personally like the guy. Uh, but he's just wrong. He, does, he doesn't seem to have uh, studied the subject in depth. And so he seems to be a little bit out of his league when he's talking about certain subjects. And he gets away with it because of his overwhelming charisma. That charisma will take you far in life. If you've got a little bit of charisma and a little bit of intelligence, you will get far. But the title of his video today is Why God Repents and Changes His Mind in the Bible. Spoiler alert, this is not giving reasons why God changes his mind in the Bible. This is actually giving reasons why God doesn't repent and doesn't change his mind in the Bible, despite the text saying explicitly otherwise. And so now the title seems to be a little bit of a misnomer, a little bit. So Mike Winger, let's uh, hear what you got to say. I have big implications about our theology of who God is, if we're going to take those passages kind of out of context, like a lot of people do. These out of context claims are always funny to me because typically what they mean is, uh, I know we're dealing with a verse here in the context of a, a chapter, but uh, have you ever thought about this other verse written by this other person centuries later in a different context talking about an entirely different subject? Can't we take that little phrase, pull it out, make it a universal, make it about metaphysics, and then use it to override the verse we're talking about? That's typically what, like if you're talking to Calvinists, now Mike Winger is not a Calvinist, but you're talking to a Calvinist, and that's 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 their idea of what context is. Context is, oh, your verse disagrees with my theology, let's go find my proof text over here. And that that trumps anything, anything that we're reading. Everything we're reading can't be real because hey did you see this short phrase i grabbed from this different context from this different author at a different point of time talking about a different subject that's our context i'm not saying mike winger does this i'm not saying that that's what he's doing here but that's that's typically what people mean by context um, so we're going to look at them in context and try to understand the theology the bible's teaching us about who god is i'll give you some examples so genesis chapter 6 verse 5 it says then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. That phrase 
So to my untrained theological ears, it sounds like God is acquiring information. He sees that man has become wicked, and then he has an emotional response. And then then not only God says that he has this response, but the narrator as well. So the, our two speakers, God and the narrator, uh, they're, they're both saying the same thing, that God repents. That phrase, I'm sorry that I have made them, and this draws immediately draws your attention to the passage. There's another similar passage in 1 Samuel chapter 15. In verses 11 and verse 35, it says kind of the same thing. I'll read these two verses to you. 1 Samuel 15, 11. I regret, this is God speaking, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. So God regrets that he made him king. Again, we get this in verse 35 of the same chapter, 1 Samuel 15. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel was grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And the great thing about these passages is both God and the narrator are saying the same thing, and it's pretty explicit what they're saying in context of what they're saying and why they're saying it, what the motivations are, and... <laughs> There is no clearer way to say that God repents uh, than both God and the narrator saying it in context of a story in which the actions of repentance are evident in that story. I don't know. I don't know what words and what sequence the Bible could ever place to make uh, Mike Winger think that God actually repents. I'm going to posit that there is no combination of words in any language that could make Mike Winger think that God actually repents. Specifically, the phrase is God regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And so this is like a pretty, um, by itself, like you just pull it out of context. Like anything you pull out of context can, can sound different than when it's in context. So we'll look at it in context in a minute. But it brings up questions. Did God change his mind? So God changed his mind. Like he had one opinion, and then he changed, he had a different opinion. Um, did, uh, does that mean God thought he made a mistake? Like if God had it to do over again, he wouldn't have made Saul king, or he wouldn't have created man on the earth in the Genesis passage. Yeah, so if you look at the actual phrasing, what is God repenting over? Is he saying, I repent because Saul's so evil? He, is he saying, I repent because mankind is so evil? No, he's saying his object of repentance, I repent because I made man. I repent that I made Saul king. He's repenting over his own actions. If that word is translated grieve or regret, what is he grieving? His own actions. What is he repenting? His own actions. The object of repentance is God's own actions. I don't think Mike Winger is going to address that tonight. I think uh, I think we just gloss over that because that <laughs> that doesn't doesn't play into the point that he's trying to make here. We'd be like, man, if I had known that this horrible scenario would happen. I wouldn't have planned this thing in the first place. Is that what it means? Um, then it could lead to questions like, well, what if he changes his mind about me? Right? What if God just suddenly decides he doesn't love me, he doesn't care about me? That would be a problem. And of course, our Christian theology is going to rebut that. Yeah, I remember that time when I, I'm in the locker room, I'm surrounded by a bunch of uh, totally mentally stable men, and we're talking about our man problems. I'm like, what if my wife, my wife can change? And so, what if she changes and she doesn't love me anymore? And okay, um, that's, you know, uh, usually we trust people by their character. You say, well, why would you trust your wife? Mike Winger, he, I think he's married. He's got a ring on or something. Mike Winger, do you trust your wife? But she can change. 
So why do you trust your wife? Maybe she won't love you anymore. You, you usually could trust people based on their character, uh, what they stated their intentions are, what their goals are, what their personality is, uh, their volition, how, how much power they have to enact the things that they want. Uh, you trust someone with a lot of drive in order to get where he wants. Maybe maybe you got a husband and he's very driven to succeed and he, he, he goes through great lengths to make that and accomplish that. You're going to put your trust in him because you see his dedication, you see his drive, you see his power, his capability. That's what human trust is typically based in. I don't know any relationship that is based on, oh, my trust is because a certain individual cannot change. Oh, I trust sitting in this chair because this chair is made out of the, the sturdiest metal that uh, can't be destroyed, but even a nuclear black. Now, uh, I trust pretty shoddy chairs usually when I sit in them. Yeah, well, one's made out of wood. I trust people quite often, and uh, a lot of them can change. So I think his objection here is kind of uh, a little neurotic. It's, it's this weird standard of trust that people inject into theology I don't know why. I, 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 I don't know why. I think people are, they tend to be insecure. They're, they, they tend to look for, for safety. People in America, for example, would rather have safety than liberty. Uh, humans value safety, but it's not, it's not a question that, uh, directs reality. It's, it's reality doesn't just conform to whatever we think is the most safe, uh, the things that we find most comforting. In fact, reality is pretty harsh. So this is not a driver of truth. This, this could be an interesting question between friends, but it's not one for serious theological discussion of deciding what the truth is. But I can understand how somebody out of context would come to that question. <laughs> It also asks the question, does it mean God didn't know? Did God simply not know? Was he unaware that Saul was going to be such a lousy king or that mankind was going to become so sinful? Was he simply unaware of these things? Is that why he's regretting? Yeah, Saul was a pretty good prophet of God. He was a godly man who, who prophesied. He got filled with the Spirit. He, he was a very godly man. And then he fell from grace. This, this was an unexpected change in the character of Saul. That he had made man or had made Saul king. Further, then, it raises a question that comes to us not from within Christian theology, but a question that comes to us from skeptics of the Bible, and they say, contradiction. Contradiction. God seems to know everything, right? But they know he, these are something here he doesn't know. Or they'll say, God, it says in Scripture, he doesn't repent. In fact, I'll read some passages to you. Numbers 23, 19, that says he doesn't repent. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Who? Who's saying that? He says, here's what it says. Who is talking? Is it uh, perhaps, uh, uh, who do we not want talking? Maybe some sort of false prophet? Um, uh-oh, uh-oh. That, that is actually who is talking is a false prophet by the name of Balaam. And God intercepted Balaam and he forced Balaam to prophesy in favor of Israel, even though Balaam is being told by a king to prophesy in Yahweh's name against Israel. So this is a false prophet that is talking. And what's he talking about? Is he giving a metaphysics sermon to the king? Is he saying, God is immutable and can't change? Well, how does how does that relate to the point at hand? God does all things all the time that look like changes, right? And in your own theology, God God uh, creates the world and then destroys it. God changes his interactions with people based on circumstances, what it looks like. So how does 
God not changing lead to God being true to Israel in a metaphysical sense. Like uh, God is immutable. So that means that God must be true to Israel no matter what. Uh, I don't I don't think that follows. In fact, I think the context of Balaam's quote is Balaam saying that God's not going to change his mind about his allegiances to Israel, especially not not on behalf of this pagan king who, you know, uh, that's not something God's going to do. So the context is the limiting factor in Balaam. And besides besides the whole point, Balaam's probably not the person you want to be getting your theology from, Mike Winger. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and he will not make it good? Also, 1 Samuel 15, 29, Also the glory of Israel, that's God, will not lie or change his mind, for he's not a man that he should change his mind. And who's talking? Is it is it God? Is it the narrator? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Mike Wager, it's, a, it's another man. It's a man. You're quoting men. Quoting men to trump God and the narrator. This is, this is bad theology going on here. Now, that word there is repent. In fact, it's the same word repent used in the passage I read earlier where it says that God regretted that he made man uh, made Saul king over Israel. The same Hebrew word. Okay, so God repents. God doesn't repent. The Bible says both. Contradiction. That's the conclusion that's... So here's the situation in Samuel. So uh, God says, I'm, I'm going to repent. and I'm going to take the kingdom away from, from uh, Saul. And Saul, he's begging Samuel and he said, no, Samuel, no, uh, please uh, uh, entreat God, entreat God on my behalf and make him re-promise me to keep the kingdom, you know, keep me as king. And uh, in Mike Winger's theology, in his mind, how he reads the Bible, this is a perfect time for an impromptu metaphysics lesson impromptu metaphysics lesson he says hey hey Saul listen here God's made of this substance and it doesn't change it's immutable and uh, for some reason I know that he just switched kings like two seconds ago but that means he can't switch kings back because of this immutability thing and uh, so changing kings is impossible even though it just happened this this is this is their idea of the scene that's being set up here rather than contextually uh, God's not going to repent of repenting, making you king. God is not a man to be swayed by by all your pleading. You've lost out. You, you, you're not going to be able to persuade God past this point. He's not a man that he's going to be swayed by your arguments in this point. God is not a man that he's going to repent of repenting of making, taking the kingdom from Saul, taking the kingdom from Saul. So over on the God is Open page, we republished a very large excerpt from uh, the blog Cheese Wearing Theology in which Amanda McGinnis talks about uh, a speech that she was listening to in which someone was trying to use Samuel's statements about God as a proof text about God's immutability. And a different scholar stands up and here's what the different scholar says. In 1 Samuel 15, there are three statements. God says, I am grieved I had made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel the prophet says, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. The narrator says, And the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Old Testament scholar, this is Amanda McGinnis talking, the Old Testament scholar then called the presenter out on hermeneutics 101, who is to be trusted most? God, the narrator, a character in the narrative, 
Answer is God and the narrator always are right. Characters can and do lie. Then he pointed out that Samuel's God does not change his mind lie is in reference to Saul's pleading. God has changed his mind about Saul being king, but he won't change it back. And so Samuel's statement is limited by context. God's not going to change his mind about changing his mind about taking the kingship from Saul. Literally, literally what's going on here is not... Samuel's not there uh, giving a metaphysics lesson. Oh, God is made out of these particles that doesn't change, and he's immutable, and, and he can't ever change his mind on anything. No, he's talking about a specific circumstance that he's already pronounced on. He's saying that you're pleading and the things you're trying to do, well, that, that might get through to a man. It might make a man repent of taking the kingship from you, but God is not like that. God is going to hold firm to his repentance of repenting of making Saul king. This is the Old Testament scholar. And here's what happens in this scenario with Amanda. The presenter hemmed and hawed and blustered. The entire room knew that the Old Testament scholar was right. In a later context, the presenter would accuse the Old Testament scholar of being an open theist sympathizer, gasped the horror. And there I sat, an innocent theology student, shocked and stunned. How could the presenter not know this? How can the presenter talk about integrity of scripture and yet blatantly proof text? This is a person with a PhD. This is a professor. So she was shocked by the blatant intellectual dishonesty of this individual who's trying to proof text using this 1 Samuel 15.29 to say that God doesn't repent. Uh, the intellectual dishonesty is stunning, even to this lady who is not an open theist. I would like to think that Mike Winger is not this professor type. I would like to think that Mike Winger just really hasn't thought about these issues. I'd like to think that he's he's ignorant of these issues at play in the text that he's quoting, and he's giving a superficial sermon. And so until I see evidence otherwise, I will think that he's just ill-informed. That's brought there. Um, so I'm going to answer all these kinds of questions tonight. This we're going to dig into. This is the topic, and I think it's actually really neat, and it has something to do with the gospel of Christ, um, which I was maybe not surprised to discover as I was studying it, but I was um, very happy to, to see. So let's look at the First Samuel passage in particular, because in the First Samuel passage, First Samuel 15, this is where we're going to kind of sit for a few minutes. This passage has both statements that God does repent. He, in the Hebrew word, there is translated in some translations as he repented that he made Saul king over Israel. And then it also says God doesn't repent because in 1 Samuel 15, 29, he doesn't. He's, he's not a man that he should change his mind or repent. Same Hebrew word. So he, But who's talking, Mike Winger? Doesn't, and he does. And it's in the same chapter. Right there in the middle of it. Why? Well, some people would say because the author of, of 1 Samuel was so dumb that he didn't know that in the same passage where he declared God doesn't repent, he also said God does repent. Some, Some people will say that. I've never met a person in my life who's ever said that. Um, I don't doubt that they do exist, but they're probably an anomaly. I don't think anyone says that. People would have this view. I think that um, that's a little bit silly because if we're going to say that people are contradicting themselves when they're in the same context, in the same, like, statements in the same like paragraphs are saying two seemingly contradictory things what we don't realize is this is just normal methods of teaching complicated issues you say it one way you say it the other way and the whole purpose of saying it two ways is because you're trying to teach a complicated topic 
Think about it. So how much do you want to bet that Mike Winger has never thought about the alternative, that the, his proof text is limited by context, and in context, God is repenting, and the the non-repentance is limited in scope to God's repentance of taking the kingship away from Saul. He's not going to address that. He's going to try to complicate. Uh, when you're complicating texts, um, Octum's razor, the, the simplest solution is usually the correct solution. If you're trying to just complicate the text, uh, you're, you're losing you're losing the natural flow of the text. You're losing what a natural reader is going to read out of the text when you complicate it so deeply. About it this way. We have passages such as in the book of John, John chapter 1, where it says in verse 1, the word was with God, the word was God. Wait, but wait, is he with God or is he God? Which one is it? No, 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 it's both because you have to understand the identity of who this second person of the Trinity is. He's God, but he's also in relationship with the Father. Ah, so he's with and he is God. Later, in, first, in chapter uh, 1 of John, we get the statement that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the word is God. He's with God. He's in relationship with God. Yet he became flesh because Jesus is divine and human. He's the second person of the Trinity and he's also human, truly human. And so this isn't a contradiction. These are two different truths being brought side by side that corrects us from getting into error. So those are only contradictions if you come to the Bible with certain presuppositions. For example, that the physical cannot be divine, which is in fact not the case. Uh, Moses approaches God on Mount Sinai. He says, take off your sandals for the ground is holy. There's a divine element in the ground that Moses encounters. It's not God is there that makes everything around it holy. That, that ground has an element of the divine. You see people taking soil from Israel because the soil in Israel has a divine element to it. In the Semitic mindset, these it's not dichotomous. The spirit and physical, it's it's not a dichotomy. They're, they're not contradictions. So the contradictions that he's pointing out to illustrate this concept, I think it's a real stretch to say that those in themselves are contradictions illustrating this concept of the Bible just outright contradicts itself in in the same in the same passage and uh, it's just illustrating a very complicated uh, subject I'm not saying it doesn't happen anywhere in the Bible but your um, examples are probably not the best that's what first Samuel is doing first Samuel 15 teaches God doesn't repent teaches God does repent when you look at it more closely you see it's explaining to us that God repents in a sense but not as a man repents. So that when the term repent is used of God, it's not what it means when you repent. All right, let's try that out. Verse 26, And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned away to go, Saul seized his skirt and his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man. Oh, back up. He says, also, also, God, his repentance is a little bit different than ours. It's not like our type of repentance. It's a different type of repentance. And uh, it's not like the man repentance. Does that fit? Is 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 he is he stopping uh, Saul? Is he saying, Saul, Saul, let's, let's talk about the different ways God's repentance is different than ours. <laughs> is that is that what's going on in the context? Uh, this is an impromptu metaphysics lesson for Saul. Uh, that's, that's Mike Winger's idea. 
And so this is what happens when you complicate the text. Uh, you make the text nonsense. There, there's nothing in there to suggest that he's stopping Paul for an impromptu metaphysics lesson. It doesn't reinforce the point, the immediate point that's being communicated to Saul. This is a communication between Samuel and Saul. And how does it fit the context of the point that Samuel's trying to communicate to Saul? It doesn't. This explanation that he gives makes this verse nonsense in the very context. So that's what I mean when I talk about context. If someone's talking to someone else, you figure out what their point is, uh, who their audience is, what point they're trying to communicate to their audience, and then you see the things they say, and you figure out how those things add into the point that they're trying to communicate to their audience. That's how you do context. You don't do context by saying, well, the Bible has a lot of contradictions, and so it's it's a complicated thing, and you just grab the verses, and you see that they contradict, and so what they mean are slightly different things in different ways, and they're teaching us about the character. Of, no, this, it's not teaching us about the character of God. It's teaching Saul something relevant to the immediate context. We we are third-party observers. We have an insight, a window into this conversation between two individuals. What is one individual communicating to the other? Mike Winger thinks that this communication is directly to us in context of overriding other statements in the same passage. I don't think so, Mike Winger. I don't think so. Look at 1 Samuel fifteen twenty-nine again. It says, also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he's not a man that he should change his mind. Again, that's the same, same Hebrew word for repent. In fact, many translations just translate it repent in all, across the whole chapter because it's the same word. This is the truth. God's not going to repent because he's not a man or he doesn't repent as a man repents. A man repents when he's like, oh, I really blew it. Uh, I'm going to stop doing what, that bad idea of mine. I'm going to do a better idea now. I've repented. I've turned. That's not what God's doing. This so that's, what, that's what's being communicated. Samuel is communicating that to Saul. So Mike Winger, he, he used the word context like 50 times. I, I don't think he's ever described the context of what's going on here, the, the scenario that's playing out, in what context this statement is actually made. Uh, d does everyone know that this is Samuel and he's talking to Saul? Is did you ever point that out? Have you talked about the context in this speech in which you're trying to tell us what the context is? Did you examine the context? This is the major difference between human repentance and God's repentance. So he's not repenting in that sense. He's not changing his mind due to the lack of character or follow through. God repented because he just didn't have the guts to do what he said he was going to do or because he didn't have enough follow through to do what he said he was going to do. It's not that. It's also not something else. It's not God changing his mind due to new information. Those are the two human elements of repentance. that we <laughs> he, he rips uh, Samuel's clothes, and then Saul, Saul's like, uh-oh. Uh and Samuel, he says, you know, God has torn the kingdom from you. Uh, also, God has a different type of repentance than us. It's kind of different, and he, he doesn't repent uh, like you and I would repent. It's not due to flaws in character. Also, it's not due to new information. So, God's repentance is not like the new information. And Saul's sitting there like, what the heck? Samuel's lost it. Has he been drinking alcohol? Is he wasted? Has he been doing some drugs there? This is Mike Winger's uh, take on, on this scenario playing out. We're not seeing in the divine repentance. Humans, we change our mind due to either new info or a, reg a regret of bad behavior. And God's not doing either of those things. In fact... 
Well, good th- good thing that Saul now knows the difference. Good thing that Saul was given that impromptu metaphysics lesson. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, same book, we're in context here. They ask God for a king. Israel says, God we, God, we want a king to be like the other nations around us. And God's like, you're rejecting me as your king when you ask for this king. But God provides them with a king. And he provides them with a warning. And in short, you read 1 Samuel 8, you can see it for yourself. But in short, he says, and this king's not going to work out well for you. That's the bottom line, right? This is not going to be a good ending. This king's going to do bad things. And then... I, I could tell you that. I could tell you that. It's, it's so funny. I'd say, oh, when the government controls prices, there's shortages. There, there's toilet paper running out in, uh, in Venezuela. You say, well, I guarantee you there's uh, price controls on toilet paper in that country. Uh, when Zimbabwe runs out of uh, milk or something like that, guaranteed it's price controls. Uh, because... I'm a rational person and you understand what's going to happen when people take power, when people do things, when you establish a king, what's he going to do? He's going to tax you. He's going to take your people and put them in war. He's going to send them to Iraq to fight. This is what kings do. And so this is his proof. God telling people the evils of what a king will do. And uh, did he go through and check mark them all? And, and uh, you know, in, in, in that passage, he's quoting a 10% tax was oppressive 10 percent that's 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 pretty low 10 percent but but i think uh, governments tend to be a lot more inflated than that these days lo and behold saul doesn't work out and then god's like i regret that i made him king well it's not like god didn't know saul would be a lousy king he knew it he planned on it he predicted it so it's not a lack of knowledge it's not as, as though god's discovering something yeah, did Saul do all those things? And King David, did King David do those things? Is this a regret of King David as well? What what are what is your point here? What what is going on? God knew that kings would do bad things, and so he knows he's gonna take the kingdom from Saul, but not David. And also, uh, he does warn David, and he warns Solomon, and he warns all these kings, if they too turn from him, he will render the kingdom from them as well. Which, which is a very interesting concept that even the kings who weren't torn asunder, uh, they also had threats against them and their kingdoms. God already knew it. Keep in mind, this is all in context of 1 Samuel. So we can't say 1 Samuel means God's discovering something new about Saul. He feels bad about his bad former decisions. And then he's making a new different decision because the new information made him realize something he didn't know before. That's not the... Yeah, that Saul disobeyed God. That wasn't actually one of the things in First uh, Samuel 8 that uh, God was warding against. He's not saying, oh, if you get a king, he'll disobey me, and then I'll have to render the kingdom from him. Um, no, that, that's, that's not what's going on there, Mike Winger. I don't, I don't think you have a point here. The case, First uh, Samuel seems to rule that out in context. <laughs> and ripping things... I haven't heard the context yet. What's going on in the context? What's the story? Who's talking to who and why? Out of context is just how you get bad theology. This is how I can create my bad theology. But looking at it in its flow of context in the scripture, yeah. we get better theology. I think 1 Samuel 15 gives us like our core, one of a couple key passages for understanding the idea of God repenting or changing his mind. And that is, he doesn't do it like a human does it, right? <laughs> not for lack of knowledge, not for... Uh, having made a poor decision, you know, or lack of character, not for those kinds of things. It's for something else. There's something else going on. But let me answer sort of a side question here. Um, did God error 
did God make a mistake when he made Saul king or when he created man on the earth? Is that what these things mean in Genesis and 1 Samuel? Was that a big mistake? I think what we can say is, the, if, if, if I can say God planned even on those mistakes, then it wasn't that kind of error. It wasn't that kind of thing he's talking about when he says, I repent. And we can say... So he holds a theology. This is pretty common in Christian circles where if you say God made a mistake, that that somehow means, uh, what, God's not God anymore? That means, oh, that's a bad theology. And it's, again, it's this moralistic argument that, uh, uh, yeah, you could call it a mistake if uh, if I have kids and the kids all turn out super evil and they're all murderers and they're all Ted Bundy's or something, I could be like, I made a mistake in having these kids. That's that's not really a moral failing on my part, is it? It's not, it, it unless I bred them to do that. It, if I actually knew that they're going to do that, then that's a really big mistake. That's a, that's a moral failing on my part. It's only if I didn't know that that's going to happen do I have actually a little bit of uh, protection from moral culpability. But that's neither here or there. Uh, this is this emoting again, this moralistic fallacy. And so what are the implications? Oh, it might be something we don't like. We might say that God made a mistake. Oh, no. Oh, no. Matt Slick will do this all the time. He'll talk to open theists and be like, did God make a mistake? And then he'll he'll try to get the open theist to say that phrase. And he'll be like, ha ha, I got you. You got me. Okay, now what? Does that mean, okay, now, so the Bible teaches it, and so you're going to have to make a decision whether you want to believe the Bible or not, and I tell these these Calvinists all the time when they get in this moralistic fallacy, it's like, you you don't have to be a Christian. Uh, there's a Bible there, and the Bible says what it says, and if you want to say, oh, that's a mistake, and I can't believe God makes mistakes, maybe Christianity is not for you. There's there's other religions out there, uh, Platonism. That's, that seems to be high priority in these types of religions who want to like, oh, God is the perfect being, meaning he can't change and he can't have predicates. He's outside space and time. He knows that, that, that's Platonism, uh, not the Bible, probably the religion you're looking for, uh, where you could have <laughs> false security. It's like, oh, God can't change. Now I'm secure. It's like, well, yeah, but it, it doesn't depict reality. And so... It's a false sense, false sense of security there, my friend. Anyways, moralistic fallacy, it doesn't have any bearing on truth. ...that God knew about and planned those mistakes. For one, we have God's general uh, foreknowledge of all things. And we can, I've done whole studies on this topic. I'll do more in the future because I want to tackle the topic of what's called open theism in much more depth. But for today, I'll just say God, God knows all things. We have this as like a firmly established biblical reality that God knows all things. All right. So we read the context of God's... I regret I made Saul king in context. But the Bible says that man knows all things. It says King David knows all things. It says believers knows all things. Uh-oh. I guess man has omniscience too. Huh. He didn't really quote any verses or proof text. So it's hard to know. The Bible doesn't actually say anything like that, that God knows all the future. It doesn't say that anywhere. Um, and this is a pretty critical key to their theology that they really care about. You would, you would think that the Bible is a pretty big book. You'd think it'd be in there somewhere if it's that critical to theology. But it's not. It's it's a key part of their theology that they think is really important. That uh, a lot of these people think you're a heretic if you don't believe it. But it's just not in the Bible. It's not there. Something they think is critical in this large book written over centuries by many different authors. It's just not there. Hmm. Hmm. 
if we want to talk about context, we could talk about cultural context. Culturally, throughout all these different religions back then, uh, omniscience was primarily a visual omniscience. It wasn't knowing all things in the future, all things past, and everything like that. It was a line of sight, typically. Uh, the Bible bucks against this in certain places where the clouds don't obscure God's vision. God could still see things happening in dark places. There's the famous Ezekiel passage where Ezekiel goes into this magic door in the side of the hill and sees things being done in dark places. But because Israel, what Israel legitimately believed that God's vision would be blocked by a hillside. This is the theology that Ezekiel's bumping up against. And his response is not how these guys would respond. He's not going to be like, oh, God knows all truths. The instant those truths come into existence by the very nature of being God. No, the, the response always in the Bible is, no, God can see what you're doing and you will be judged for your actions. It's a completely different mindset. It's a Semitic rather than a Greek philosophical mindset, this Platonism where all truths as they come into existence are immediately at the forefront of God's mind, ever present with all truths uh, forever so that all the conversations, maybe Moses is talking to God and uh, they're talking out a situation Oh, he, Moses can't actually be communicating anything of value to God because uh, there's no real interaction because God has all that knowledge at the forefront of his mind in the same way, all facts forever. That's, that's just not what we read in the Bible. There's legitimate dialogues between man and human beings where human beings contribute to the conversation. But let's go on. Context of the fact that he knew it all, all along. But there's a couple specific passages that speak of God's plan. And it relates to the Genesis one. In Genesis, God regretted that he made man on the earth. Think about that. If I take that at face value in like the human sense, the human sense, not the divine, how does this apply to God, but how would this apply if a human said it? Then he's like, well, it was really a bad idea to just make you humans in the first place. I shouldn't have done it. That's how a human would mean it, but God doesn't repent like a human. <laughs> Okay, so let's let's turn to Genesis and uh, see this repentance going on here. Um, we know what it would read if anyone else said it, but uh, go look at our other verses that we you, did. You see this false prophet Balaam, what he said about God. Also, did you see what Samuel said over here in this context of repenting of making Saul king and not repenting of that? Did you see that? Did you see these two guys? Uh, they tell us, Balaam, the false prophet, and Samuel, a character in the text, says that uh, God's repentance is a, just a different character than man's repentance. They're just a different type of repentance. And their repentance is based on different things in different ways. You imagine Balaam walking up to that uh, king uh, against Israel and saying, hey, 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 hang tight here. Uh, God's repentance is just a different quality and, uh, you know, man repents about things that they might regret or something like that or due to lack of information. Uh, but guess what? Yahweh, who we're talking about here, um, he doesn't repent based on not having knowledge um, and then finding out new things. That's not the type of repentance that Yahweh has. Uh, it's it's a different than a man's repentance in a way. And this king, he's sitting there like, what the heck is going on here? What what are you trying to communicate to me, Balaam? What, what relevance does this have to anything? <laughs> Mike Winger's rendering of these verses make the verses meaningless meaningless this is what he's doing and then, then he calls it context meaningless verses are context 
How do I know that's not the case? Because God had intended and planned the fall of man all along. And we have scripture to support this. And for, in uh, 2 Timothy 1.9, it says that God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose, that's his agenda, his purpose, and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Not for all eternity, from all eternity. Meaning that the intention when Adam and Eve were made was Christ. With the creation of man, Jesus was already in mind. The, the, the coming of Christ, the salvation that we have, the gospel was all planned out ahead of time. If that That's a little bit of a stretch. Uh, Paul says that the Jews foreknew him from the beginning. That means the Jews had omniscience of all events from the beginning of the universe. They had foreknowledge of all things. No, that's that's not what's going on there. Uh, typically, these these phrases mean for an extended period of time. Then you have to figure out if uh, the phrases like before the foundation of the world or or from the foundation of the world or since the foundation of the world, they mean before the flood, after the flood, before the fall in Genesis 3, after the fall. Is it the actual creation event going on? There, there's a lot of things up in the air, and he's he's he, he's making a very, very concrete assumptions based off of prepositions. Uh, you don't want to base your theology on prepositions. Prepositions are notoriously elastic and have a wide variety of meaning and use. So don't don't form your theology based on prepositions. If that's the case, and, and we're thinking, when God sees the sinfulness of man, he regrets making man. But wait a minute, when he made man, he already had the plan for not only the sinfulness of man, but for the salvation of man. It was all encompassing, planned out. In Ephesians chapter 1, we have another scripture that says the same thing. Let's just pretend everything he said is absolutely 100% true. Uh, it's a given for the sake of this conversation. God has Jesus in mind from the creation of the world. Does that preclude him from regretting making the world and attempting to destroy the whole world and undo all creation and then forego his plan? Is is that precluded for, from God uh, having a plan? God has a plan. That means that plan must be come to pass no matter what. Um, it doesn't follow. His, even, even if the things he's saying are granted, it doesn't prove what he's trying to prove with that information. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Wait, I'm chosen, you're chosen, in Christ before the foundation of the world, which would be... Is that about individuals or is that about people groups? And does that mean that God can't undo the world if God wanted to, if the creation didn't turn out the way uh, God wanted, that th there's not an undo button now that's ruled out because of this verse? Uh, this, this is really, really bad, bad proof texting, especially because he's trying to use these verses to override a different verse, verses that he said he's going to explore the context of. And I don't remember him exploring either context. Oh, wh what was the thing that Mike Winger said that uh, Saul did in order to uh, uh, cause God's uh, wrath and cause him to pull the kingdom of? Did, did, did he, he talk about the actual context? Did he talk about the context of Genesis at all? Did he talk about what's going on there and the, and the sequence of events and what, what happens? Did, did you explore the context? No, context to Mike Winger means let's turn to this other proof text and assume some wild things into that proof text. And now that will undo the verse that we're looking at. 
be before Adam, right? But Christ, being chosen in Christ, incorporates the fall. It incorporates awareness of your own identity, of your existence. So all of the actions that would lead to, you know, Kirk sitting right there, you know, and existing in this world. Those are major, major assumptions, especially because in the Bible, God has a special remnant that he wants to save. And it's who's in the remnant of the people who are righteous. This is the people group that God wants to form up and rise up and make his people. And people could opt in and out of that. And we, we see in Revelation, people's names can be added to the book of life and removed. It's a dynamic list. And we see that also in other extra biblical literature written by Christians this is a dynamic book that names can be added and removed. Clement, for one, uh, has this idea of the book of life. This is a common idea that God wants a people to himself, a people that he wants to form and conform to God's image, conform to Christ's image, a predestined, predestined, foreknown. There's a relationship with this people group, but that doesn't mean individuals. And Mike Winger, he's just assuming that into the verse. He's assuming that into the text, that it means Mike Winger's name was in this book from before the foundation of the world. There's no, no verses for that. There's no proof text for that. In fact, all the references to the book of life have since the foundation of the world. So it's it names added after the creation. After creation, Mike Winger, that doesn't fit your theology. That refutes your theology. Certainly, Saul's failures to like take out the Amalekites, like certainly that is included oh, in oh, God's some full awareness of all things. Given a so God's bit awareness of and his agenda and his plan, they go back to before the foundation of the world. In fact, it says in Ephesians here, in love that God predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. This means the cross and the adoption through, through Christ was all part of the agenda to start with. And that cross thing, that, that whole cross event, includes all the awareness of all the sins of people. <laughs> and that was the plan originally. So we don't see God here Show your in Genesis work. saying, Show your work. I wish I'd never made man because I didn't know about this major sin issue that was going to be happening. No, because Jesus is already planned Show out, your including work. your individual participation in Christ. Oh, okay. You definitely proved that. So I would say this. God grieves not in the sense of, I wouldn't have done this if I knew what would come of it. But as in this, I grieve... For what you have made of what I have given. God provides these blessings and we mess it up with our sin. And God's genuinely grieving in that moment over what man is doing. But he's not thinking, oh, this ruins my plans. Oh, like, like Jesus is like the backup plan. Wow. Uh, the, uh, a great lesson that uh, Saul and uh, the king in, in, the, in the instance of Balaam and, um, and Balak, Balak, Balak and Saul, they, they learned some uh, critical truths that were relevant to their situation that they were dealing with at the time. Thank you, Mike Winger, for your insight. Uh, brilliant. I guess I'm, it's going to have to happen. We're going to have to do this whole thing. Like I didn't know it was going to come to this, but this cross thing, it's like really going to have to be. Uh, but no, it was the agenda all along. So on one side of the coin, this is what First Samuel is giving us these two sides of the coin. We have God regretting in context of man's choices, and this is what we'll see consistently. We're going to look through like 11 passages of God uh, repenting or relenting in a minute. But we'll see it's always in context of man's choices. It's always in context of man's choices. God's really responding to your decisions, your choices. When you sin, it really grieves his heart. I like how I uh, froze Mike Winger in this frame. He's just uh, waiting, he, uh, waiting pensefully 
for me to respond. So there are some verses where God repents not based on anything man has done. Uh, sometimes God repents for himself. Sometimes God repents because someone intercedes on behalf of others, even though those people don't change. Um, God, <laughs> right back to it, God repents sometimes because of himself due to nothing that the people have done, due to no change in the people. God says, I repent for my own name's sake. There's no change in the people. Huh. Huh. Hmm. So that's these critical verses like this that undo their complicated attempts to override the details in each of these passages. Their, their complicated way of undermining and mitigating this text are undone by Bible verses which disprove their general points that they're trying to proffer. Proffer? I proffer is the good word. Like this is a personal God, a, a present with us God, who's not just aloof, unaware of what's going on, disconcerned with what's going on. It's not as though he has such great power that he's just distanced from us and doesn't care. But he cares about our actual situations, what we're going through, the sins we commit. He cares deeply. So God regrets in context or grieves for what we've made of the, of the things he's done. Um, but on the other side of the coin, he has foreknowledge and he has a sovereign plan already to deal with those things that we're going through. So I think we see two sides of the coin there. Samuel, hey, I'm going to give you this king. He's going to be a lousy king. Gives him the king. God's like, it breaks my heart that he's such a lousy king. All kings. uses the terminology. I regret that. All kings. All kings are going to be lousy kings. Uh, yeah, that's, that's not hard to predict. But I've made Saul king, but this was part of the agenda all along. So we get two sides of the coin. I think there's a passage that explains this in Jeremiah 18. This is another key passage, I think, for getting this concept. So Jeremiah 18, verse 5. It says, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, can I not, this is God speaking, can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I planned to bring on it. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm sitting out a prophet, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruin you, but if they turn, then I will turn from that plan. If they turn, I will turn from that plan. Verse 9, or at a moment, at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it, which means bring blessings on it, right? If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. So then... Speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. O oh, turn back each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. Yeah, so God is actually getting ready to do something. And if he has knowledge of the future, what's he doing? Why is he getting ready to do something that he knows he's not going to do? Uh, the verses that he's quoting actually... Uh, the, the translation he's using kind of hides the language that's being used in Jeremiah. God says, uh, when, when a nation turns made from their good or from their evil, I will not do what I said I was going to do, and I won't do what I thought I was going to do. So it's, it's a dual use of words to try to flush out the full meaning of what God is saying here. God will truly repent of things that he thought he was going to do in these verses. 
Uh, God th thinks he's going to do something, and he doesn't do it. This doesn't fit Mike Winger's theology, and so it, it's another text that needs to be mitigated. So God's repentance here is, is in, in the sense of his posture. Here's my posture towards you. I'm going to bless you. Oh, you're going to sin, sin, sin? Okay, I'm now going to curse you. So talking about the context, because we like to talk about context, talking about the context of Jeremiah uh, 18, there, there's a parable of a vineyard, and he builds a wine press because he expects good grapes, and then he doesn't get good grapes. So he, he built the wine press because he expected the good grapes. This is the context that God thought something was going to happen, and then that thing did not happen. This is failed expectations. God's expectations are thwarted, so God has to change his plans. God might say he's going to do something. God might think he's going to do something. But if mankind changes, he's, he's not beholden to the things that both he thought he's going to do and the things that he said he was going to do, which all of this totally undermines everything Mike Winger was just saying about God's plans earlier. Oh, God had this plan from the beginning. Well, yeah, God reserves the right to change plans um, in the verses that you're quoting, but you're not you're not putting two and two together. You're not seeing how you're undermining your own point um, by you can't just say God has a plan. Therefore, everything's fixed from eternity. None of that it, it doesn't work. God's plans change based on present circumstances. Here's my posture. I'm going to curse you. Oh, you're going to turn from your sin. You're going to turn to me. I'm going to bless you. That's just, that's the context. It's not that God's changing, it's that we're changing. It's, think of it like this. If I placed a, turn off all the lights in the room and I put a flashlight in the room. And then I just like cement this thing in place. So it's like Thor's hammer. Like you just can't move this thing. It will not be moved. And then we walk around the room in circles. And sometimes we're in front of the flashlight, we're in the light. We can see we're in the presence of the light of the flashlight. Other times I'm behind the flashlight and I can't, I'm in the dark and I, I can't see my presence around me. I don't see any of these things. And it's us that are changing. I'm going from the light to the dark. And I could say in some sense, well, the flashlight, from my perspective, is turning around. But from another perspective, it's staying exactly the same. And that's what God's showing us. His relenting is him staying the same in his posture towards sin. This is manifestly not true. This is, this is uh, their explanation to try to get around uh, clear verses in the Bible, which God repents. We'll turn to Exodus 32, and God wants to destroy Israel. He wants to kill them all. He wants to make a new nation out of Moses, and Moses convinces him otherwise. And here's what it says. It says, and the Lord relented. This is that same word, the regret. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. And so God's repenting. There's no change in the people. The people don't even know about this conversation. This conversation's going on without them being present, without them having any change of hearts, change of minds. This is God repenting in response to petitions. Hmm. Hmm. And listen to this. Huh. And you shall know that I am the Lord, Yahweh, when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, not according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. So God's not saying, oh, you just changed positionally in relation to me and, and my disposition towards you is always based on how evil you are or something like that. No, uh, sometimes he doesn't treat people based on their relative positioning because there's other factors in consideration not a relative change. God is acting sometimes for his own namesake. Uh, sometimes he says, I'm just so weary with repenting. I, I'm, I'm wearied out with repenting, so I'm not going to repent anymore. Uh, God gets emotionally drained 
God says this. God, God says, quotes by God. It's not some guy in the text. We're not quoting Balaam. We're not. Uh, this is God talking. God becomes weary with repenting. Jonah says, God is a God of repentance. Jonah says, why did you send me to Nineveh? I knew that you're a God who's going to repent. I knew this This is your character. Uh, you repent. I know this about you. You're going to change your mind on things. And so why did I even come here? Why, why did I do this? This whole God is immutable and we just change in relation to a light pole thing. It's a complete fabrication and it's a way to try to salvage immutability. Immutability is not a value that the Bible champions. God often acts for his own name's sake. When recounting the events in Exodus 32, God says the reason I did not destroy Israel was for my name's sake. It was for himself. Himself, his own character, his own uh, wider PR campaign, the perception others have about him is the reason that he changed. The reason is given, and it's not this shifting around the light pole thing. It's a fabrication on Mike Winger's part to salvage his theology. It's not what's going on there. The, the Samuel, Samuel and Balaam are not describing a light pole to Saul and Balak. That's not what's going on in those texts. It's not this, hey, hey, stand tight. Stay tight while well, I'm going to give you this metaphysics lesson about light poles. It's not what's happening. And us going from sin to repentance, sin to repentance, and that bringing us to darkness or light. So that's one way of, of looking at this. I think that makes sense. So there's principles we can get from this passage in Jeremiah, this kind of key passage on this, that this is the explanation in the Bible for God's repentance, because it's from God. It's like, God's like, here's what I mean when I say I repent. I mean, you changed, I won't kill you. But he's not even changing there. His posture is the same, isn't it? No, he says, I won't do what I said I was going to do, and I won't do what I thought I was going to do. It's definitely a change in him that he's describing. He's not going to do something that he planned to do. He built the wine press uh, with failed expectations about uh, having good grapes. In one sense. So he does repent or relent in that sense, but it has a context. It's always related to the behavior of man changing, for better or for worse. And then so God's response to them is genuine. Why is this? Is it because God changed his mind? No, in fact, it's based on consistency. That's why he can predict it. And if you repent, I'll repent of the harm. And if, if you, you do good, I'll you know, repent of this or that. It's, it's like it's related to the behavior of mankind, for better or worse. That's verses 7 through 10 right there. If he speaks concerning a nation to pull it down, but the nation turns from its evil, he'll relent. If he speaks how he's going to bless it, and then they do evil instead, he's going to relent of the, of the good, repent of the good thing he would have done. The application is this. He would have done. He said he was going to do. He didn't do what he said he was going to do. He didn't do what he thought he was going to do. Uh, Mike Winger likes to not really examine the phrases, the context of what he's talking about. He doesn't tell us who's talking. D did he Did he mention Balaam? Balaam at all? Did he, he throw that name out at all? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. He doesn't. He didn't even explore uh, who's talking in Samuel, really. When we're talking about uh, God, not a man, that he should repent. We look back at those phrases about what God repents about, and they're tied to God's own actions. He doesn't look at the phrasing. He wants to pretend the phrasing doesn't exist in the way that the phrasing does exist. It tells us why God repents. It tells us God's reason for repenting. It tells us how God repents. There's verses all over the Bible that do all these things, 
And uh, his response is, well, it doesn't really mean that. And here's, listen to my complicated thing where I have no scriptural support to. I just assume that that's what these verses are saying, even though there's verses that flatly contradict that. God's not changing relative to us. Uh, God's changing sometimes for his own sake. God does that uh, without any change in the people. People can pray. Moses can pray for unrepentant people, and God will change. God will repent. The word will be repent. God will repent. But he he doesn't he doesn't pick up on this. He doesn't he doesn't want to know about this. It it seems like a almost almost a willful ignorance. He he does not want to find out that the Bible teaches open theism. That would be a shock to everything he's learned up to this point about Christianity. It would be. An entire paradigm shift that he can't deal with. God will actually judge and deal with all of us according to the way we live. Like he's actually going to deal with us. But here's this beautiful application. He allows U-turns. That's the application. He allows U-turns. He allows you to change so that that fate that's going to befall you will not, will not fall on you. This is beautiful. And this connects to the gospel of Christ. Is that here we have a world in rebellion to God and this message is going out. No, yep, you're going to be destroyed. But turn but you're going to be destroyed, but I have eternally known that that's not the case. So when I say that you are going to be destroyed, that's apparently just a bald-faced lie. God's just lying to people to trick them into behaving. You lie to your kids. Uh, you you say, as there was a co-worker, like, well, my kid was misbehaving in the car on the way to grandma's. And so I told them, you misbehave again. I'm going to pull over and make you walk to grandma's. You're going to lie to your kids to try to make them behave in a certain way? You just lie to them? You just trick them? Is that is that that's his perception of God that God's just saying things that would never ever occur, never ever happen. Uh, things that God doesn't plan on happening, uh, they're empty threats. Uh, they're they're things that and then he's he's presenting them as if they're factual. Ah, uh, I, I don't think you're salvaging. You're not salvaging um our perception of the text here. I don't think that's what's going on. God's just, the Bible doesn't present God as just tricking everyone into compliance. And in fact, it fails quite a lot. Uh, so God's threats actually have to occur. And they don't, God says, I've punished their children in vain. In Jeremiah, in Jeremiah, he says, I punished their children in vain. His expected results of the punishment do not materialize and that's pretty common. And uh, God says that in Judges that, you know, uh, he's going to stop repenting. He's going to stop uh, listening to their pleas. He's going to stop listening to their prayers because they just don't get better. Uh, God's expectations are continuously being thwarted by mankind. And God, he gets emotionally drained, emotionally drained. It's not a, it's not a flagpole. It's not we're changing relative to the flagpole. God is a personal being, and he gets emotionally drained by the stuff that we put him through as people. This is a big no-no in Calvinism. This is a big no-no in Platonism that we can emotionally drain God. But it's a very critical part of the Bible. It's a very critical, acute feature in the text that mankind can drag God down emotionally. We can frustrate God. God gets frustrated by man's actions. Turn, you turn from sin and I'll turn from destroying you. That's the message. No. <laughs> In fact, messages of God's wrath are always meant to turn us to God's grace. They're meant to get us to change our mind. They're meant to be a wake-up call. Like it was with Nineveh when Jonah went there. Yeah. And it woke them up and they repented and they were saved. It doesn't work in your theology, though. Here's an example in Ezekiel 
chapter 18, verse 30. God speaking to Israel, he says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from your transgressions, so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. This is interesting because interesting, in Ezekiel, we find God's like, you're going to go to these people, but they're not going to listen to you. So God already knows they're not going to listen. He still sends out the message, turn so that I won't destroy you, because it's a genuine offer. Here we have God's sovereignty and, God's fr- and the free will of man really working together in scriptures. They're not like a combative thing, but they're working actually together. So if you repent in that... I'd like to direct our attention real quick to uh, John 12, which is quoting Isaiah about this, uh, you know, they won't believe, they won't listen, things like that. It says here, John 12, 37, though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us and whom has the arm of the Lord revealed? Therefore, they could not believe for again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their hearts and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Huh. I wonder what this means. Does this mean that uh, God sovereignly declares that people can't respond and he sends out a prophet and knowing the prophet's going to be absolutely useless and no one's going to believe because their hearts are hardened. Well, let's, let's read one more verse. One more verse. Huh. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. What? What? Uh, so that this audience who uh, they have blinded hearts and uh, hardened hearts and blinded eyes and, and they're incapable and, and this is a prophecy that needs to be fulfilled. It says, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. Huh. So I guess I guess it was effectual. So what, is, what does it mean? Maybe it's just, I know this is a stubborn people. I know the majority of them is not going to believe, but we're going to get through to a few of them. And and it, it's true. In a general sense, it's not a metaphysical thing that God knows from all eternity and you're hardened and, and read the text because it says he has blinded their hearts and hardened their hearts. So, well, not the people who believe. There's there's people in this group that's being referenced that believe. Huh? This This prophecy, is this being thwarted? Is that what's going on here? The people who have blinded eyes and hardened hearts, they believe? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So it seems to me that these statements about uh, going out to these people who are hardened and who are unresponsive, that these statements are actually about uh, God knowing the character that people are hard-hearted. I don't think it's a metaphysical absolute. I think God understands that uh, the, the possible outcome of these events are people are just not going to listen. I, I know that if uh, maybe I go preach at a campus or something like that, I know that uh, their hearts are going to be hardened. I'm going to I'm going to be blinding them. I'm going to be hardening their hearts because they're going to see me and they're going to fill with resentment and hatred. I might get through to a couple of them, uh, but overwhelmingly that is going to be the response. I think it's a generality. I think uh, one thing we need to not do with the Bible is take it too literally. Who is it? John uh, John Christostom? I, I don't think I'm saying that right. But uh, he, he writes about people who took Jesus's phrase and Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. And what these people would do is they'd build crosses and they'd, they'd walk around with a giant cross on their back uh, because they took the words of Jesus a little too literally. They didn't allow literary flexibility in the phrase. 
I think what's going on in John is they're they're allowing literary flexibility. They're allowing figures of speech, and it's it's not a metaphysical thing that Mike Winger is claiming. Flipping back to Jeremiah 18 real quick, uh, let's t- let's talk about how Jeremiah 18 ends. And this is actually like you know Moses prays for the people that. Uh, despite the people's non-repentance that God saved those people alive, Jeremiah prays the exact opposite. He says, uh, O Lord, know all their plotting to kill me. Forgive not their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. Because uh, God, often uh, God acts in anger. And so sometimes God cools down after his time of anger. Uh, what Jeremiah says, don't don't punish me in your anger, O Lord. Uh, give it a, give it some time. Not, don't let your emotions make my judgment harsher. Uh, but in Jeremiah 18, he prays the opposite for his enemies, that God deals with them before God has a cooling off period. Uh, so it's, it's not a positional change that he's praying for. It's not a uh, God deal with these people and if they repent, save them alive. He's saying, just kill these people. They're very wicked. And... Uh, Please, Lord, deal with them in anger. Deal with them harshly. I just thought that was an interesting little side note about the context of uh, Jeremiah 18. It doesn't quite fit into this guy's theology. It doesn't quite fit into what Mike Winger is saying here. In that human way, God will repent in that divine way. If you repent, uh, I really made a mistake, Lord. I, I'm going to quit my sin. God repents in the divine way. Well, then in my consistency, in my goodness, I will, I will allow you back into the light. That's a different thing. Okay, let's go through, um, these are approximately 11 examples of how God is going to repent in Scripture of something he was about to do in the future. So we're just going to like systematically move through these examples, and I think we'll find them enlightening as to their application. All right, we're getting pretty long here, so we'll kind of uh, scroll through this, and we'll see if he deals with our example in Exodus 32 and see what he says about that. I got a feeling if he deals with it, he's going to say, oh, see, uh, this was a whole setup for Moses to pray and intercede in order for God to change. So the first one is Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, verse 12, it says, I'm going to read through verse 14. It says, why should the Egyptians speak saying, oh, by the way, let me give you the background a little bit, right? They've left Egypt. God brought them out of bondage, all the plagues and all this stuff. Here's how you do context. But the um, Israelites are rebelling against God. And God tells Moses, I'm just, I'm done. I'm going to kill them all and start over with you. Right? And so here's the response. Apparently that's a lie though, because he doesn't do that. He says that's what he's going to do. Um, then it never happens. And here's what Moses says. Why should the Egyptians speak saying with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants whom you swore to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants and the, as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I've spoken. I will. So let's talk about context. Let's stop right there. Talk about context. Who's talking to who? Uh, God is talking to Moses. God tells Moses something. Moses is responding to God. And what does Moses do? Does Moses have this theology where God knows all future events and he sees that he's going to pick the best thing because uh, God knows all possible futures and the best possible outcome. So always defer to God. That's not Moses' theology. Moses sees God in anger 
uh, wanting to destroy Israel. And so he needs to convince God not to do that. And so what he does is he sets down a tiered argument, one or a cascading list of reasons why God should not do that. Because in his mind, he thinks that God will respond to reason, to logic, and this will give time to reflect on the situation and change his course of action. This is what this communication is doing. Moses is talking to God. He's talking to a God for a reason. He's talking to God in a way that he thinks will be uh, beneficial for God, in a way that he thinks God will respond to, because he has individual conceptions about who Yahweh is. And, and let me tell you, they're not the same conceptions that Mike Winger has of Yahweh. Uh, this conversation would not be happening between Mike Winger and Yahweh just because of his base assumptions of who God is. So context, context is examining the situation, examining the narrative, figuring out character motivations, figuring out uh, different plot points, how how the the plot develops, any any character development within that plot, all critical to the context. Who's communicating to whom and why? This is what we really care about in regards to context. This is what context is. Will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. Verse fourteen. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Now, out of context, you'll be like, "Wait, what?" God's like, "I'm going to do this," and he like, "You talked him down." Like Moses just talked him down. That could be your perspective. Or if you see God's, <laughs> it's it's not Mike Winger's perspective. This is you just heard it from him, his own mouth. That's not his perspective of what just happened. Sovereignty in things and his foreknowledge of all things. You see that God set this whole thing up to teach us all lessons. He has Moses, the guy he picked. Right? If he really wanted to destroy them, you think he? This is a Marriott uh, puppeteer thing where God's just manipulating the situation to really teach Moses something. So. He says he's angry. He's not really angry. He says he's going to do something. He's going to make new people out of Moses. Not really going to do this. This is all for Moses's benefit. And why? Does does Moses think that God has these attributes that are being championed by Mike Winger to override the context that we're reading? Does Moses think that Yahweh has all future events in mind and and he's unchangeable and he only repents on a on a light pole or positionally related to us and we just shift and the light pole remains the same this is not moses's theology it's not what's going on in context this is mike winger trying to mitigate this text this very damning text to his theology one that they are mutually exclusive you tell moses he'd be like you're dead like i don't have to tell anybody that this whole thing was planned out, like just like with Abraham offering Isaac, I want you to offer him. But he knows all along you won't let it happen. He's drawing a picture of Jesus Christ and his, his sacrifice and his offering for us. He's play acting. He, he set up a grand play. Uh, going back to Abraham and God, God says right before he goes to Sodom, he says, shall I hide from Abraham the thing I'm going to do? I know that Abraham will be a great mighty nation. And so then he draws on Abraham a great and mighty man to give input into the situation that's developing because he wants a relationship. He wants human input. He, he has advisors. He has human advisors that give input into the divine plan. God takes advice from people. 
God solicits people for input. Uh, there's the whole crowdsourcing scene that we see in uh, in the case of King Ahab, where he crowdsources the angels for ideas on how to kill Ahab. God is a God who confers with others about his plans. And sometimes his plans don't take effect for years later, as, as we learned from our judges study, that sometimes God's plans take up to three years in order to come to fruition. So Mike Winger's criticism is if God really wanted them dead, he'd have just done it and not solicited for input. That's not really typically how God operates. He typically tells people what he's going to do and why he's going to do it. And then people are able to give input, then change God's mind. And, and Moses thinks that he can do that by giving a cascading list of reasons. Mike Winger doesn't think that Moses can do that. Moses thinks that God can do that. And so if I'm going to side with one person, it's going to actually be Moses. It's not going to be Mike Winger. I think Mike Winger has his own theology. I don't think he cares about the biblical theology. Uh, he, he really wants his own theology to be true. He's, he's really invested into his own theology. And the text, it doesn't matter. There's, there's no sequence of words that this text could say that will make Mike Winger think that God repents. No sequence of words, even though it contradicts previously what he said about repentance. There's not a positional change. It's not a light pole and people sin moving back and forth, uh, becoming more righteous or more evil and a relational change. This is God repenting. And in future texts, looking back at this, God says that he repented for his own name's sake. He listened to Moses' arguments. He internalized those arguments. He considered those arguments, and that's the explicit reason given for the repentance. Mike Winger is wrong. All right, if you have any comments, questions, anything you want to add, throw those down in the comments section or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Thank you for listening.